2: Welcome to the Real Love podcast series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with the world's finest thinkers and teachers, exploring Sharon's latest book, Real Love, The Art
0: of Mindful Connection.
2: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm speaking today with two friends that I don't see enough of, colleagues of mine Sensei Robert Cherto Campbell and Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison. They are the founders of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, which is the first Zen-based organization to offer accredited accredited chaplaincy training in the U.S. (coughs) Their work with end-of-life care and bereavement has had a huge impact in New York and beyond. In 2016, Koshin's book, Awake at the Bedside, came out. I'm thrilled to welcome both of you here today on the Real Love podcast series to speak about your incredible work, which I've been witnessing for for quite some time now, and also about love and relationship, as you're not only partners in your work, but also in life. Congratulations on your your marriage. Thank you. Thank you. So you are uh, both of the Soto Zen traditions, all right? So maybe we can start by talking a little bit about how each of you came to be practitioners and then teachers of the Soto Zen tradition for anyone that may not be familiar with your story.
3: So I would say that I was a deeply curious teenager, and I found out around when I was 17 that Allen Ginsberg was alive and teaching at this place called Naropa. And I decided to head out there to meet this person who I admired so much and was so inspired by. And I arrived in Boulder, and I was on, walking on this street called Arapahoe Avenue, mm-hmm. and down the block came this guy wearing these robes, these Zen robes, and it was John Didaluri who was this... You know, American Soto Zen teacher and he was the first teacher that I ever met who I felt so inspired by it. and he was my first teacher and so it was kind of amazing the confluence of poetry and joy and practice kind of all came together hmm. just on Arapahoe Avenue.
2: That's fabulous you know I started uh what year was that?
3: That was nineteen eighty seven
2: so in nineteen seventy six when Europa first opened that's where I began my my life as a teacher that's where I began teaching uh, with joseph goldstein and, and many friends it was It was the inaugural summer, and uh, it was an extraordinary time and place, including for the fact that Allen Ginsberg was there
3: <laughs> so amazing yeah he was such a special, dear man and magical
1: mm. Koshin, you said you are a curious teenager, Was that right? Yeah. Uh, I was a very troubled teenager. Mm. <laughs> so I came to Buddhism much later. I came to Buddhism um, after years of uh, abuse of drugs, alcohol, and whatever else I could get my hands on. Uh, and so for me, Buddhism was, uh, I met my first teacher similarly, I guess, uh, on the street, Uh, someone that uh, I really caught sight of and was very inspired by how they looked and just a whole sense of who they were in, you know, kind of in just a heartbeat. I just knew that this person was going to be important to me in my life. She turned out to be my first Zen teacher who she was a Dharma heir of Peter Matheson, Peter Mm -hmm. Muriel Matheson. And she introduced me to the cushion. And that was almost... 28 years ago, and from my first sitting, I never looked back. Mm. It was just an amazing experience.
2: Yeah. See, you both have very literary uh, elements in your lineage and your Mm -hmm. backgrounds. Mm It's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it is interesting. So I say sometimes I became a teacher the old fashioned way that my own teacher told me to be a teacher. Mm. So I don't know how it works, sort of, in Mm. in, uh, Zen lineages.
3: So in Zen lineages, it's usually a long process of kind of getting to the point where you have to kind of really burn through a wanting to be a teacher. And so many people come into the practice and want to, you know, after a year, they're like, "Okay, I'm ready to be a teacher." And really, it's kind of a learning to be intimate with your teacher. And it's through that face-to-face relationship over years that it kind of comes to a point where it just becomes clear. And so in Soto Zen, you, it's called uh, transmission, so that you actually receive these an actual, its actual documents and an actual ritual where you are then empowered to carry on the lineage. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was kind of amazing that, our teacher Dorothy Diane Friedman, so she gave us transmission together. So, oh, which was very sweet.
2: How Anyways, did you meet? Did you meet in that context? Or maybe you'd rather not say. <laughs> I wish you could see the faces I right
1: now. Uh, Let's see. I was uh, living out in Sag Harbor, uh, in, at and uh, my I was sitting at Sagaponack. Uh, Zen Center with Peter Matheson and Diane Friedman, and I came into New York City, and um, one evening I went to a meditation center down in the village, and walking in front of me was this guy with a lot of hair at the time, (laughs) and and a jingly jangly ring in his nose, and (laughs) And all this hair, and I thought, "Well, he's cute," but actually, I was already in relationship and living in Sag Harbor, so it was that was it—just one, just one night in the big city, and uh, then we didn't see each other. And he had saw he saw me too on the same evening, right?
3: Yeah, and at the same evening, I saw him. I peeked during walking meditation, and and I actually saw him. I felt like my whole life had changed, and but he scooted out after meditation so we never spoke
1: and wow. we didn't see each other for 6 years really? after
2: that wow
1: and then 6 years later i had moved back into the city and um wow do you want the story
2: <laughs> sure we can always edit it out if, edit. It's like <laughs> <laughs> if it's
1: if it's of no if it's of no interest to anyone else um so I had recently got married. Yes, that part of the story is okay, Coach. <laughs> it's true. I had recently got married uh, in September of that year, and um, I was starting to sit at this meditation center in the city, and uh, I was volunteering in hospice, uh, and one day one of the, the priests from the zendo came up to me and said, are you married or are you in a relationship? I said, Yeah, I just got married. Why? She said, Oh, it's okay then. I said, No, I'm curious. Why do you ask? Oh. And she said, Well, there's somebody in the Zendo that really likes you. And I said, oh, <laughs> oh. Oh,
2: I'm keeping this in. I like this.
1: <laughs> and, and I said, Who's that? She said, I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> but he's always smiling. So I said, Okay. So the next time I went to the Zendo, again, walking in walking meditation. I took a peek, and Koshin took a peek at the same time, and I saw this big smile, and I was like, <laughs> oh, Christ.
2: Did he have no hair by then? Did you recognize him? He had you?
1: no hair by then, but yeah. it was the same big smile, and we went for coffee, and then we went for lunch, and now I've been married six months mm. to my ex-husband, and... It was just awful. It was so, it was so, it was love. I mean, there it was, right there. I mean, it was like smack. Um, I was 47, Koshin was 30, mm. and all my friends were saying, You're crazy. This is infatuation. And I don't know what Koshin's friends were saying, but it was, people were saying, mm, You know, you, no, don't do this. Well, and also,
3: you know, what happened is also, I, Chodo came back to the city and I, was so excited. With the mind, I remember him walking in again, and I was like, wow, it's, it's happened. And so I had inquired about what he's up to. And, and I was also taking care of my grandmother, who was dying at that time. And my grandma said, if he's a married man, let him be a married man. And if he wants to be with you, End that relationship, and then be with you, which I thought was fantastic
1: mm-hmm. advice.
2: It's pretty good advice, yeah. So
3: that's what happened.
1: So that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to make you know one of the the riskiest. I mean, I've taken a lot of risks in my life, but here I was at forty-seven. I met someone of a similar age, we had a lot in common, and I thought this is my last relationship. We'll. we'll we'll go slowly into retirement and we'll travel and suddenly as i said i bumped into Koshin, and my whole life turned around and 17 years later whoa <laughs> we're still here turning <laughs> each other's Flash lives those around wedding rings, it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was uh, yeah that's how we met wow yeah that was a true love story right but it was it kind was of amazing too
3: like on our first time together where we just like sat we used to sit in parks a lot and just talk a lot and we talked about on our first time in father demo square in the west village we sat and talked about like what we were reading and what we're interested in and we both found that we had this deep passion for practice and this deep practice for being with dying people it was so amazing and to realize like uh
1: What do you do on your first date? Oh, we talked about death and (laughs) dying. Yeah, good. (laughs) 17 years later, you're still talking (laughs) about the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of amazing. Yeah. We're still eight dead. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Great. So, uh, this is the 10 year anniversary of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. That's a giant congratulations for that.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Um, It is a really remarkable milestone. And. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the mission and also how you you came to it. Was it out of this passion? Did you think about chaplaincy in a, a larger sense, or or primarily friend of life care? And uh, what's the unique? If there is a unique Zen flavor to it to the program,
1: we were. I we were actually I was uh, volunteering in hospice, uh, and um, I realized. The reason I started volunteering in hospice was I wanted to take my practice off the cushion into the world. And I felt there was something more to my Zen practice than just meditating. And so I started volunteering and I realized that from day one that this was my calling, that I really wanted to do this. You know, Having spent a lot of my years taking care of others in, in kind of different ways uh, and not taking care of myself, we could say. Um, this this calling was very, very powerful for me. And uh, then when Koshin's grandmother came into the same hospice that I was volunteering in, that's really where our relationship was concretized, was cemented. And it was through taking care of his grandmother that um, we realized just how important it was that uh, people's experience as they're dying is so, so... Um, it's so important that love is actually, it's about love, really. It's like real love. It's about real love. It's mm-hmm. how, what else can you surround someone with when mm-hmm. they're dying? Mm-hmm. What is more important than to mm. let someone know that you're listening to them, that you see them, that you hear them, that you can hold them, that you're not afraid of them. And, uh, it was Koshin's grandmother. I know I'm speaking for you, Koshin, but you know, we're 17 years together, um, Koshin's grandmother, Mimi that said, you know, you, your community that comes to visit me, all your Zen guys, they, they've got something going on here. They sit, they listen to my stories, they listen to, you know, and they were listening to other people, you know, other patients in the rooms. We were just going from room to room being volunteers. And Mimi said, you, you and Koshin need to start something. Mm. You need to start some kind of program where you can train others just to be just to sit and listen and hold.
3: And but my great, cause you know, she was this Jewish, you know, lady from Brooklyn. And she's like, you know, I never thought I'd say this, mm-hmm. but there's something to the Zen thing.
2: Uh, <laughs> this is the same grandma. Yeah. Like, yeah.
3: <laughs> she said, there's something about just the ordinariness about how you're willing to just show up. Mm-hmm. And so if you can train people how to do that
2: mm-hmm.
3: and, Train them in the Zen thing and how to take care of people. And so, really, the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care was born out of Mimi Schwartz's vision. (laughs) So, she's kind of the founder, actually. She is the founder. Totally. And I think, you know, the mission is really clear it's about transforming the nature of how we care for each other. And we do that through meditation practice, through our education programs, and our direct care. Mm -hmm. program. So we have cared and supported over 100,000 people Mm. in their most vulnerable moments of their lives in the last 10 years. It's so humbling. So it's our group of trainees and our people on staff now, and it just keeps growing. And I think the Zen flavor was very intentional for us that we thought about should we have it just like the Center for Contemplative Care, but then we realized that who we are needs to be in there Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And so the Zen part is really the Zen training that's available. And all of our training programs are based on the precepts or ethical guidelines for how to be in relationship, or we could say how to really love people well. And, and yet we've had rabbis and acrobats and nuns and all kinds of people and people from inside tradition, from every kind of tradition do our training, but but everyone knows that it's kind of, they're coming to a particular flavor. And it's, I think it's helpful because it orients us. So we're not kind of starting in a general way, we're starting in a very specific way and widening out.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are you saying that the kind of ethical basis of like not harming and having compassion and Mm -hmm. compassion for yourself as well as for others is is the core of what people are... Is that right? Absolutely.
3: Absolutely.
2: Was your grandmother the first person that you had sat with who was dying? Or given that you already had a passion for it, it sounds like...
3: Well, when I was growing up, um, when I was a teenager, my... Dear family friends, Michael and Jerry were, you know, hit with HIV AIDS before it was even called HIV AIDS. And Mm -hmm. so we used to spend um, after school spending time with them in really ordinary ways. And so it was kind of like in my bones for a long time. And, And actually just how ordinary it is. You just show up and you eat a sandwich and you talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing extraordinary about it. It's offering respect and dignity to people mm-hmm. and actually laughing and having fun and mm-hmm. crying and, or whatever.
1: Yeah. No. Of course, I'm going to contradict you because that's what I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to turn to you anyway. <laughs> I think there's something really extraordinary about the whole. Uh, experience of being with someone that's dying. It is a very ordinary occurrence, but there's something very extraordinary about bearing witness to it. You hear so many stories um, of people when they're with people who have just passed. The moment that that happens, how the energy in the room can change, how there's just something that's very, very mysterious happening. So I think the extraordinariness is in that. And it, it is beyond languaging. You know, you you can't really talk about what it is because we don't know. But um, so on the one hand, yes, it's very ordinary because it's happening all the time. But it's extraordinary if you get to bear witness to it for those of us who are fortunate enough to to be there at that moment.
2: I get how they can both be true because if you think (coughs) of it only as extraordinary, you also feel I can't do it. You know, who the hell is capable of, you know, qualified to... I don't care how many trainings I do, you know. Like <laughs> that's that's an awesome thing, like mm-hmm. to to bear witness to that. And yet, I think we can do it. Mm-hmm. So that that speaks to the ordinariness of it. And yet, I mean, what an unusual thing! And I think almost, especially in this society where it's almost like a secret, you know, <laughs> it's like you can't talk about it, or it's it's unmentionable, or it's like there's a really bad surprise at the end of the play. <laughs> the <laughs> curtains come down. You know, okay? I'm you know, like,
1: uh oh. Um. It's such an there's such an irony to the whole thing, though. You know, if you think we've been dying for hundreds of thousands of years, and now we have training programs to teach people how to be with people who are dying, I mean, it's like the most natural thing in the world yeah, to do yeah, is yeah. to be with the person that you love or the person that you're taking care of, and just do what mm. comes naturally. Yeah. But we've forgotten how to do it. Well, it's...
2: Yeah. In the Buddhist tradition, there's, there's something that, um, uh, tell me how you feel about this, the advice they say, it, this is uh, in Theravada Buddhism, you know, so I don't know what that would be looking like in, in Zen, but in countries like Burma or those places they would say, um, if you're present when someone who's di- is dying, remind them of the good that they've done. Hmm. And I always felt that was a little odd because I thought, well, wouldn't that... Make them be more attached and therefore suffer more as they need to let go. So, because you're supposed to be specific, like you were a great cousin you, when I was really a child and you were older, you took me to the park and you like, you know. So then I thought, well, wouldn't that make it really tough to to kind of let go? And yet, uh, when people ask, I say, this is my understanding, you know, of the advice. And every single time someone has come back to me and said that was the perfect thing. Mm hmm you know i'm mean, clearly it's better than talking about it. so tell me what you regret the most or you know <laughs> right. whatever uh but there's something about it's love i guess you know when mm-hmm. you think about that you mm-hmm. know ways you've been connected um brings the more love into the room mm-hmm. and and seems to be uh an and e- it makes for more easeful mm. letting go so what do you think
3: sometimes uh huh Yeah, I think sometimes. I think that what we have experienced individually and together is that sometimes people need to really ease into love, right? Or ease into ease. Mm -hmm. And we've also experienced people who have really needed to be angry for Mm -hmm. the first time in their life. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. And it
3: was amazing. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And awesome actually and exactly what they needed to do so i think it's always important you know for you know i guess from the zen perspective is you just one moment one chance like Mm -hmm. you don't know so Mm -hmm. like in this encounter all about ease and love the next moment all about rage and regret Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm.
3: and just being with someone where they are Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not assuming I think has been our right it's
1: been my experience Mm -hmm. this is a wonderful story that we often tell our students about the there was a man dying in in hospice and uh, one of our chaplains was on duty was during their rotation, and this man was dying, and he wanted to see his daughter before he passed away. <laughs> and he hadn't seen her for something like 15, 20 years, so he asked the social worker, you know, this is my the last known address and phone number. Could you, Could you try and track her down? I'd really like to see her before I die. So the social worker spent a couple of days and finally found the daughter and said, listen, your father wants to see you. He's dying. And she said, I'm not coming. And she said, well, he's dying. He's in hospital. She said, I oh, don't give a shit. I'm not coming. So comes back to the patient and was said, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to do. It's so awful. But she said she doesn't want to see you. So he said, she said maybe the chaplain could help here. So the chaplain makes a few phone calls and maybe approaches it a little differently and says it would be really wonderful if you were able to just be present to your father when he's dying. You know, he just would like to see you. And she said, I'll come, but I'm not staying. So she came. She walked into the room. She looked at him and she said, I'm glad you're dying. I've always hated the fact that you left us. You've never seen your grandchildren and you never will. Goodbye. I'm out of here. She turned around and walked out. The social worker was beyond. She's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. What have I done? What have I created? here?" And he said... Thank you. I gave her the gift of telling me how much she hates me. Mm. The things that I regret, leaving her and her mother, not seeing her my grandchildren. It's the most beautiful thing I could have done for her. Mm.
3: It was his last gift to her. It was his last gift to her. To actually, she was never able to share with him in person how hurt she was by mm-hmm. him. And he said, I did those things. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's like, and I just hope that it releases her from it. Yeah.
2: Beautiful. I hope so too. It's <laughs> like, hey, it could go the other way, you know. Like, um, but I, I understand that I, I sometimes I joke, but it's also true. I say, you know, I have I have this fear that I'll be dying and I'll just be in a kind of I don't know, solitary space. I'll be having my whatever. And all my friends will be gathered around saying, Go to the light, go to the light. I'll be thinking, Please be quiet, <laughs> but I won't have the energy to say it. So, should it be you guys? Just let me say, you know, I guess it's just your intuition, right? You just feel and you. Yeah, but we don't do that. No, that. Yeah. We just sit, you know. You eat don't. sandwiches, I guess. Yeah, we don't do go to the light thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you eat sandwiches yeah. and you or, or you know, yeah, yeah. or bring in pizza, <laughs> whatever's the most. So <laughs> let me ask you this, um, because I work a lot in, in different contexts with caregivers and therefore uh, work a lot with people who are incredibly caring and have a tremendous amount of empathy but maybe burning out for whatever reason. I actually don't hear that much about people who work in hospice which is interesting, I, I, you know, there's, if you bring up issues of, like, moral injury or moral wounds, you know, sometimes it, it, you know, happens that somebody will, who's, like, a hospice nurse or somebody uh, will talk about, you know, the person's ready to let go, everyone's ready to let go, but the family's not ready to have them go, so they feel torn about what they're instructed to do, and uh, all kinds of situations, obviously, can be very complex, and and uh, really painful in so many ways. But uh, tell me about burnout and what you tell people. You're training cadres of people.
1: <laughs> You're
2: trying to decide who's, who's going to answer. <clears throat> rock, paper, scissors.
1: Right. It works so well. Right. Saved, it <laughs> saved our marriage, rock, paper, scissors. All right. <laughs> There's been, there are some really interesting studies that have been done uh, around empathy and compassion and um, the difference. And you know, I think – actually, I, from you, I learned mm-hmm. a long time ago that I think it's you that says empathy is the bridge to compassion. Yeah. That's one of yours, mm-hmm. right? I use that a lot. Um, There's a study in Canada that they, they had a group of nurses in, in a trauma unit and a group of uh, hospice nurses – and they found that the the hospice nurses who were day after day after day after day being with people who were dying, were tended to be more empathetic, tended to be more in relationship with the person who was dying, and therefore much more able to take care of themselves because there wasn't that you know there's that myth that we need to put a veil between us, or the wall between us and the person who's suffering. That way we'll avoid burnout. I can't continue doing my job as a doctor, as a nurse, whatever it is, if I get too close to the patient. We actually believe and teach that that's a myth. Mm-hmm. We need to be in relationship. We need to be able to notice what it is. I need to, for me, I need to be able to notice what it is that I'm going through in order to process it. I can't just shut it down, and the most obvious place for me to be able to work with that is with people who are dying or suffering. But usually, for me, well, my practice, I'm spent mostly with people who are dying.
3: Yeah, and I think that the difference is, you know, empathy, you know, can be a bridge to compassion. But I think many, you know, healthcare workers actually get burnt out because they're just functioning empathically. And so I think the compassion practices of really giving and receiving is essential for resilience. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of our training programs are really compassion training mm-hmm. and really how to really give and receive. And we have noticed the difference also with hospice workers, as Chido was saying, that the hospice workers are tend to be very close to the bone about actually how important to live a life is that actually in that same study that the people in the ICU who were working in the ICU felt more burnt out because they're not actually really in- reporting that they don't feel as engaged
2: mm-hmm.
3: in what life is really about. They're mm-hmm. actually engaged in almost like doing anything to prevent what's mm-hmm. actually happening. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking there's a um, there's a very big different. It's a big difference in context of success and failure when you're working. You know, one of the sneaky things that has us feel overwrought and uh, overly responsible and therefore burnt out is that we can't fix it always. You know, it's too massive, or it's going to take time, or we need to do our part and then let go of that expectation and. Frustration is very hard to let go, whereas if somebody's mm-hmm. dying, they're dying. You know? mm-hmm. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is a different story.
3: Right. It's like practice, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, working with dying people is so much like practice, like just being with what is. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing.
2: Do you want to lead us in a, a practice period, short period? compassion giving and taking i don't know you mentioned little go ahead hmm. do you have a time uh thing there or a time thing uh, yeah or do you want me to say something to um
3: so let's just sit or if you're laying down or however you are but just to be take a moment to adjust your posture so that you can be available and upright in your mind. And just see if you can allow what we call the hara, which is a place about two inches below your belly button and allow your mind to rest there and allow that area to be soft. So we're just gonna sit for about less than two minutes but just noticing each time we get concerned or have thoughts arise, we just learn how to return to the softness of our belly. and to appreciate that there are many people in this world who are swept by the winds of this life. And so we can offer this meditation to benefit them, those who don't have the space and time and conditions to just be soft. and allowing yourself just to rest. Feeling the inhalation and the exhalation. Each time your mind wanders, gently just bringing it back to your Hara, two inches below your belly button. In this way, we practice compassion, bringing softness into the world for ourselves and others.
2: Thank you. Thank you, that was nice. Um, so let me ask you a couple of other questions, okay? And and I'm really going to leave it up to you whether you want that whole thing about your prior marriage and whatever in there. So I'll probably ask you some more about being married or just mm. whatever you want. You could take that out if you like.
1: What do you think? No, it's
2: up to you, really. Or
3: Can you edit out just that he was priorly married?
1: Yeah, that's fine. no. There's no secrets. Could
2: you, that, you edit out that he was married, uh, and that, or whatever? Actually, nothing unethical happened. Right. So like, okay. What well, if, it's up to you guys. It's. Yeah,
3: I think it's kind of a sweet story. Actually,
2: it's so sweet. Yeah, it's so human. It's a Menchie story. And grandma. And,
3: and grandma. She was so smart.
2: So let me ask you this: Because um, when someone enters your chapel, first of all, how long is the chaplaincy training? Is it two years? So people can do our
3: all of our training programs in two years. So we've had people actually move from Israel and different places to come here for two years. What mostly people do is do this nine month training, which is our foundations and contemplative care training, and that's for anybody. And so we've had lawyers and artists and news anchors. News anchors, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And doctors and nurses and all kinds of people do that training. And so for us, that's actually one of the cornerstones so that at least what people are experiencing for nine months of training and they're doing bedside work. And so they're doing that. And I just think it's. What we hear from them is that it actually allows them to be better partners, better, more present in their relationships. Or as one of the person who did our training and he, we saw him on the subway and he said, you've ruined me. Now, actually, every relationship I have feels so much more alive <laughs> and intimate. <laughs> and so, yeah. So you could do the, all of our accredited training in two years, but you also... Most people do the the foundations program, which I think is just a great way to integrate your practice into how you become a more caring person in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And it, it's really geared toward end-of-life care more than like prison work or other things like that. Is that right? Um, it's for
3: old age sickness and
2: death. Okay. Well, that's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so we, the classic stuff. So we <laughs>
3: send people to nursing homes, to hospices, and hospitals. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. It's well, juicy.
2: Old age sickness and death are the heavenly messengers, right, mm-hmm. that the Buddha saw before he was the Buddha Absolutely. that set him on his path? Mm-hmm. Uh, because after all, this happens for all of us. So.
3: Yeah, and we find that there there's such a remarkable difference in doing meditations about those things and actually walking into a nursing home and sitting down and walking into a hospital ICU and sitting down and walking to a hospice and getting to know someone.
2: So it seems to me also the community would be really important because people, I mean, the person who freaks out and, and feels like upset or ill themselves can't be alone, right? And so they need to know that they're not alone, and so they must really help each other.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a really important piece of the work that we're doing and of our community. I mean, we have, it sounds kind of cliche or sappy, but we have a real caring sangha. Uh, We were talking about this on Saturday evening, actually. um, When there are two or three people that are not present for a couple of sittings... You know, in a couple of weeks, we have Sangha members that are—they're they're the designated caregiver hotline, calling our Sangha members. Are you okay? We missed you. Are you is everything okay with you? Um, and so when—and if someone's had a particularly awful day at the hospital or in the nursing home or even at their work, they're able to come to the center, the center, and to just either sit and say nothing, or talk to other members, and just say, this has been a really awful day. How do I take care of myself?
3: Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that we saw in our own clinical training programs that before we started the center was that people were so isolated, and so to have, we didn't want to replicate that, and so the Zen center is really, the hub of it is community, mm-hmm. and you know, the jewel of Sangha is so essential actually for resilience and compassion, like so that you can feel like you're really received somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and just in case anyone is unfamiliar with the word Sangha, uh, is um, a Pali word, I don't know if it's also the word in Sanskrit, but uh, Pali is the language of the original Buddhist text and it means community, mm-hmm. so um. It's uh, an incredible jewel and a refuge to have to have that sense of community. So, and you've always had each other, you know, in this work at any rate. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Just as I feel I've always been teaching, I've always been part of a team, you know, mm. and we didn't know what we were doing either. Certainly, I speak for myself. I didn't know what I was doing, and then, and we, you know, but I was never alone. And mm-hmm. we had each other before we met.
1: I mean, I think we really always have had each other mm-hmm. before we met in this. On this time around, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, wouldn't you say that was true? That's so sweet. So sweet. I only say these sweet kind of things when we're either in company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, it's so difficult to be intimate with the person that you love most, right? It's, I, for, me, for me. For me. I'll keep it in the eye. For me, it is so the most difficult person to be intimate with is the person that I'm with the most. Oh, the person that I love the most. Uh, now he's pricked up his ears. So
2: <laughs> you're also a couple who works together, which is an interesting dynamic. Mm, yeah, we <laughs>
1: we work together, and everything stays okay as long as he listens to me and, <laughs> <laughs> and realizes. Oh, that. they're laughing! <laughs> it's, it's we're so lucky. We work together. We're married. We live together. We go on vacation together. But there are so many differences, too. Mm-hmm. We, we don't read the same books. We don't watch the same TV programs. We have this wonderful, well, rock, paper, scissors. We have this wonderful way of being able to settle our disagreements. Actually, someone... Oh,
2: you have more than one TV. <laughs> no, we don't.
1: No. Nah. Um, and actually, someone last night was at, the, at our annual holiday party said, how do you guys do it, living together, working together, going on vacation together? And I think it's because we have so many differences, right? That we're not... Well, I think it's
3: it's just very unusual. And I think that, you know, thinking about your book and actually what it means to love someone. Mm. And we were talking about this earlier about intimacy. And I learned so much from my grandma, Mimi. And, you know, she at the very end of her life, was talking about how how ashamed she was because she, she didn't feel like she loved me fully. And I was so confused by that because actually I would never felt so loved.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And she said it was really the whole Zen thing that it really scared her. Mm-hmm. And she realized that a part of her contracted away from me and shut down. And she was ashamed of that. And she said, you know, I can't believe it took me 87 years, but at least I now understand what it means to love someone, Mm. which is to love all the aspects of them, even the parts you don't like or understand, but realize that those aspects make them them. So you have to appreciate them the parts that are scary or the parts that are confusing or mysterious. And to me, that was
1: like... Are you saying I'm confusing and mysterious?
3: Well, I we think that the beauty is that we all have those parts, that we have like little mysterious things like, why
2: does he mm-hmm.
3: do that or why does he do this? Or, and just to realize that that's what makes us who we are. And I feel like that we both share a very similar view. Of that, and really deeply appreciate our differences, because we are so different in so many ways and yet share a very similar heart, and I think that that, for me, is what makes it all so energetic
1: and lively there's a, yeah there's a wonderful saying, anamkara, do you know anamkara mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, irish um and it really talks about love as be, finding your true love as the soulmate, you know, the soul friend. Actually, is mm-hmm. the translation. And um, I think when we found each other, we found that real deep soul friendship. And it was something that each of us recognized instantly. I mean, I remember my therapist many, many years ago. we talking about you know all, all my different romances and. Uh, she says, you know, you always fall in love at first sight, Robert. And I said, Yeah, I know. It's like so exciting. And she said, you know, the next time you walk into the room and you fall in love at first sight, run. <laughs> because it has nothing to do with reality. You know, it's, you're meeting on some kind of neurotic level. Sometimes. And I really <laughs> took, <laughs> No, but I took that to be I took that to be gospel for years. And then when I met you, it was like oh, my God, this is not neurotic. This is ancient. This is really different. It wasn't until later I found how neurotic you are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, they're looking at each other again. Okay, I, I, uh, I've fallen in love with your grandmother. <laughs> She's my guru. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you have any other gra- grandma quote? And we'll just uh, wrap it up with that.
1: When she's coming down the hallway in there. Oh, yeah. So she
3: said, you know, you definitely cannot commit to this person until I get my eyes on him.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Good. Good for Grandma.
3: I said, that's very reasonable. And so when actually I was wheeling her into hospice, there was Chado standing in the middle of the hallway. And she turns around in the wheelchair and she says... He's the one. Whoa. And she had this big smile on her face. And she's like, you're in good hands. Oh,
1: it's so beautiful. And then just before she died, I was with her, uh, like a few days before she died. And she called me over to to her side. And she said, promise me you'll never hurt my baby. Oh. Take care of my baby. And I said, "Okay, I promise.
2: Thank you,
1: Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But I love the story about Mimi. We don't have to put this in, but it's a great Mimi uh-huh. story. So she calls everybody to the bed. You know, it's on her final days before she's dying. And this one evening, she's like, it's time to call the family, bring your father, my, my daughter, and your friends can come and bear witness to this. And um, we're sitting there like, Half an hour goes by, an hour goes by, and there's Mimi, and she's like laying on the pillow. (laughs)
2: That's
3: really funny.
1: And she squints and she looks at her watch and said, yeah, it's not happening now. Let's order pizza. (laughs) She's like, all of you must be starving.
3: She's like, and I think you should order some beers.
2: (laughs) All right.
3: Let's have a little fun. Go, Grandma. (laughs) Go, Grandma. (laughs) That's
2: fabulous. Not happening. (laughs) Not happening yet. Well, okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for taking the time to... Sit down with me today, and I would encourage everybody to learn more about Koshin and Chodo's work at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. You can go to their website at http://zencare.org, <laughs> and you can learn about their trainings, their services, and the community. Thank you.
1: And by the way, can we just say that um, your new book, Real is Love, on, is on our list, Thank and you. we recommend it to all our students because it's so beautiful. Without love, actually, without. Mm, this, I thought it was one of the questions you were, we were going to answer um, that how do we do this work? Yeah. Right? We can't do this work without love because that's what this work is. Yeah. Right? That's what we instill in all our students. This work is love. And, um, and thank you.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah.
1: And we love you. And I love you too. <laughs> and we love you too. And I love, and I love you. I love you. Oh, and yeah. I love Emily. And you. Oh. And I love John. We love everybody. In love the everybody.
2: Room. Okay. okay. Not bad. And rap.
1: <laughs> and rap. It's a rap.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at sharonsalzburg.com.